Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. So I have, a, I have a good friend who pastored a small church in California, and uh, at this church they had Sunday school. They were a very traditional church. They had Sunday school, they had Sunday morning worship service, and then in the evening they had Sunday service. It wasn't like the Sunday morning service. People would come back for the Sunday evening service. Well, my friend had a wife and kids and wanted to take them to the beach, and so he would try to hurry out of church Sunday after the morning service and go to the beach in California and then hurry back, but it was always unpredictable in terms of the traffic and things like that. And so one Sunday, he was coming back for evening service, uh, and he was running late due to traffic, and so he barely got to church in time uh, for the Sunday evening service, and he didn't have time to change, but he was there with, with khaki uh, shorts and a collared short sleeve shirt and he had the service uh, that Sunday evening. Well, the next day, one of the elders contacted him and said, I would like to get together to talk. And so they got together to talk and my friend was accused of nakedness in the pulpit um, because he had shorts on and a short sleeve collared shirt. Uh, by the way, I have a short sleeve collared shirt today. That's that's more for the picnic than to be naked in the pulpit. So anyways, but uh, you know, legalism is something that is uh, alive and well in the church today. Uh, for those of you who, who maybe have never heard of legalism, let me give you a simple definition. Legalism is applying extra biblical commands, like commands that aren't in the Bible, extra biblical commands to everyone. Or it's using biblical commands as a means of salvation, okay? So legalism is applying extra biblical commands to everyone or using biblical commands as a means of salvation. Now, we'll kind of tease that out throughout the service, but that's a general definition of what legalism is. And the thing is, is as you hear the, the, the term legalism, as you think about legalism, I'm curious who comes to mind. Uh, where do you see legalism in the church today? Well, legalism is kind of like lettuce in the teeth. It is so easy to spot on other people than it is to spot on ourselves. How do you know? How do you know if you are a legalist? How do you know if you struggle with legalism? Well, I came up with 10 diagnostic questions to, to kind of evaluate if you are a legalist or where you struggle with legalism. Now, what was so funny is when I got down with this, done with this list, I realized that this is has the same form of the, you might be a redneck jokes. Do you know those jokes? Like, like, you know, the blue book value of your truck goes, if the blue book value of your truck goes up and down based on how much gasoline is in the tank, you might be a redneck. Do you know those jokes? So this is not the, you might be a redneck, but you might be a legalist, all right? These are, these are the questions. So here they are. First, if you care more about being right than being kind, you might be a legalist. 
If you feel more comfortable with rules than with messy people, you might be a legalist. If you cannot join a church because none of them are as right as you are, you might be a legalist. If you're debating someone on moral or political views and you do more talking than you do listening, you might be a legalist. If your family member describes you as mean and angry instead of gentle and lowly, you might be a legalist. If you frequently correct your children's behavior without addressing their heart, you might be a legalist. If you think the world would be better if everyone was just like you, you might be a legalist. If you are more aware of your spouse's sins or other people's sins than you are of your own sins, you might be a legalist. Number nine, if you are accused of being a legalist and it makes you very, very, very angry, you might be a legalist. And finally, if you have been thinking about someone else that needs to hear this sermon on legalism, you might be a legalist. I don't know about you, but when I look at these 10 diagnostic questions, one of the things I realize is that I'm not only a redneck, I'm also a legalist. I have struggled with all of these in various forms throughout my life, some even today I struggle with on a constant basis. And while we might make light of it in a certain way with, you know, it might be redneck, legalism is no joke to Jesus. To Jesus, legalism in our hearts is a lethal thing. And so if you would, please open up to Mark chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. There's a red Bible, and it is page 842 in that red Bible. Uh, you know, in a way, as I thought about it this week, we are all kind of born into a world of legalism. When you think about it, uh, much of your acceptance and your value and your approval in most spheres of your life are based on your performance, on how good you are or on how pretty you are on, or on how cool you are or how righteous you are. I mean, if you went and you asked 100 people what makes them acceptable to God, almost all of them would say, it's because I try to be a good person. Legalism in our fallen world is our default setting. But again, to God, legalism is lethal. It's lethal in our relationship with one another. And most importantly, it's lethal in our relationship with God. And so my hope and prayer is that God would expose the legalism in our own hearts in lies, that we can put it to death and live in the liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna, we're gonna be looking at Mark 7, verses 1 through 23 today, but we're just gonna start by looking at verses 1 through 13. So Mark 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, 
As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Verse 9, and Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many, many such things you do. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our legalistic hearts are already defensive. We already cry out, I am not a legalist, because we want to be the good ones. We want to be the right ones. We want to be the clean ones. Lord, pray that you would humble our defensive hearts, expose the legalism in our own souls, convict us of us, and free us from our legalism so that we can soak in the gospel of grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we've gone through the gospel of Mark, as Jesus encounters adulterers and crooked tax collectors, uh, other terrible sinners, even demon-possessed people, uh, Jesus is very gracious and gentle and loving and compassionate. But when it comes to legalism, Jesus flips the switch. He flips over tables. As a matter of fact, if you look through the Gospels and you see Jesus get angry, there's a pretty good chance he is angry over legalism. Nothing seems to stir the anger of gentle Jesus like legalism. And I think the reason why legalism makes Jesus so angry is because it is so dangerous. Because it is a respectable, subtle, and hideable sin amongst the people of God. You know, adultery and stealing and murder, those are obvious sins. But legalism, legalism is very hard to spot, especially within ourselves. You can live and thrive in a church as a legalist. You can even be considered a mature Christian because of your legalism. And yet legalism is so lethal because it undermines our relationship with God and with one another. And so in this portion of scripture, which is the longest conflict speech in the gospel of Mark, Jesus wants to expose the legalism that resides within all of us, that he might free us from it. And so there are three things we're going to learn about legalism from Jesus in this passage today. The first is this, is that legalism adds to God's commandments. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Let's pause there for a second. So you have the local Pharisees and scribes, which are kind of the educated folk uh, of the religious culture, come up from Jerusalem to gather with the Pharisees. They have come really to kind of uh, interrogate Jesus to a certain extent, to watch over him, to wait for Jesus to mess up so they can get Jesus in trouble. This is what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark so far. 
Verse 2, they get their opportunity. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled or unclean, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, right? Maybe not every single, but, but all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. And then this is key, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Verse 3 makes it very clear that this washing of hands that's being talked about in this passage is not a command of God. It is not found in the Bible, but it is the tradition of the elders. You see, in the Old Testament, God did require the priests to have a ceremonially, ceremonial cleansing before they went into the temple to worship God to show that they are unholy, that they are unrighteous, that they are dirty, and that God is holy and righteous and perfect. And so there was that for the priests when they went into the temple for the worship of God. But nowhere in Scripture did it command that everyone needs to ceremonially wash their hands before every meal. You see, the Pharisees took God's law and basically said, listen, if some ceremonial cleaning is good, more ceremonial cleaning must be even better. They added on to God's law. Now, kids, I know you're here today and you're hoping this means that you never have to wash your hands again before you eat lunch. That, that if your mom or dad said, hey, make sure you wash your hands, you can just yell out, legalist, right? Legalist, you're such a legalist making me wash my hands. But here's the thing, for, for the Jews in that day, washing was not an issue of hygiene, but an issue of holiness. Look, look at verse four as it continues. It says, and there are many other, many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, and pots, and copper vessels, and dining couches. To say there were many other traditions is a bit of an understatement. In the second century AD through about the fifth century AD, over three centuries, they gathered together all of these extra biblical laws that the, that the Pharisees and the scribes and others have put together for the people of God. And they put it into a book called the Talmud. It's so extensive that one website says it takes about seven and a half years to read it. These are all the extra biblical laws that the Jews went by in the days of Jesus. If you look up the Talmud on Wikipedia, this is how it describes the Talmud, and this is very important. It says, the Talmud is the central text, the central text of rabbinic Judaism and the primary source of Jewish religious law and Jewish theology. Until the advent of modernity and nearly all Jewish communities, the Talmud was the centerpiece of Jewish culture, life, and was foundational to all Jewish thoughts and aspirations, serving also as the guide for the daily life of the Jews. Did you hear the problem? The Talmud, not the Bible, is the central text the primary source, the centerpiece, the foundation, the guide to life. The Talmud, full of these rabbinical man-made traditions, apparently has more authority than the Bible itself. See, every church has traditions, catechisms, procedures, and teachings. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. It's even a necessary thing. But where it goes bad is when those traditions and catechisms and procedures and teachings have equal or greater authority than the word of God. 
You know, personally, I grew up in a denomination where you were discouraged from reading the Bible. You really were. There was no encouragement to read the Bible at all. But what you were encouraged to do was study the teachings of the church fathers. That's who you were supposed to study. And so their, uh, their opinions of the Bible held greater authority than the Bible itself. There's even denominations around us where when the Bible contradicts their, their theology of their church, they will simply say, it's a mystery, right? And there's some things that are a mystery. For example, the Trinity is a mystery. I'm not sure how it all works. It's a little bit of a mystery. But, but when you say that baptism saves a person, that is not a mystery. That is heresy. You see, traditions and catechisms and confessions are really good servants of Scripture, but they are poor masters. The problem is not with those things. It's when we put them above the Word of God. And for the Pharisees, they had a long listing of rules that maybe at first were set to interpret and to apply the word of God, but over time became more authoritative than the word of God itself. Verse 5 continues through verse 7. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to, and then here it is again, the tradition of the elders? Not the scriptures, but the tradition of the elders. But eat with defiled hands. And Jesus said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And then here's the important part. Teaching as doctrines, that is biblical doctrines, teaching as biblical doctrines, the commandments of men. Again, the Jews had elevated their man-made teachings to the same level or even above the word of God. You know, we still have this propensity today, not only on a denominational level, but on a personal level. Maybe I can offend you with this, but, but one example of this is alcohol. In the Bible, it does not say you shall not drink alcohol. It says you shouldn't get drunk, but it doesn't say you shall not drink alcohol. In fact, the Apostle Paul encourages in 1 Timothy for the people to drink a little bit of alcohol for medicinal reasons. Furthermore, Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine. And we know that the wine was alcoholic because the Bible also warns against drunkenness. And drunkenness is not possible if there is no alcohol in the wine. Now, some people choose not to drink alcohol, either because they are very tempted to get drunk, which is a sin, or because they have a loved one who is tempted to get drunk, or because it has devastated their family. That is not legalism. That is wisdom. Where it turns into legalism is when you take this extra biblical law, do not drink alcohol, and you apply it to everyone. When you say in your heart or with your words, if you drink alcohol, you are a lesser Christian. See, here's the thing. All of us have temptations. All of us need extra biblical commands in our lives. All of us need boundaries in our lives according to the areas that we are tempted. But where it goes legalistic is when you take your extra biblical guidelines and apply it to everyone. Let me give you another example. My wife and I, we don't watch rated R movies because of the violence and sexuality and language. It's just not good for our souls. And so speaking for me personally, rated R movies stir up what is already within me, which is uh, the valuing of human life, 
lust and unwholesome talk, all of which is forbidden in Scripture. And there is a temptation in me to say, no faithful Christian should ever watch rated R movies. That's a temptation for me. But that is when a personal boundary slips into legalism, is when we take something that is good for us and apply it to the entire Christian church as if it is in the word of God. Another example of that is education. Someone may have conviction on what is best for their family in terms of private school or public school or Christian school or homeschool. And it's great that you follow God's conviction on your heart for that, but when we say everyone must do this schooling or no one must do that schooling, what has happened is we have added to the word of God and have dipped into legalism. The reality is this, some of you should never go into a bar. Some of you should never go into a casino. Some of you should put filter on your internet. Some of you should not own credit cards because of certain temptations you face. But when you say in your heart that every faithful Christian must not do these things, you have slipped into legalism by adding on to the commandments of God. And so the first thing we see is legalism adds to God's commandments, the commandments of men, and then applies them to everyone. The second, and this is a little bit shorter, is that legalism undermines God's commandments. Let's actually look at verse 8. It says, you leave, you leave God's commandment, the commandments of God, and hold to the traditions of men. Did you hear that? Let me read again. So important. You leave, literally lay aside the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God. So you leave them, you reject them in order to establish your tradition. And then he goes on to give an example. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And so if you notice, Jesus is not quoting other men. He's not quoting the traditions of the elders. He is quoting the word of God. And he's saying, listen, this is how important it is to God that you honor your father and mother, that it carries the death penalty if you don't do it. That's how important this is. And yet your laws that you are creating are actually undermining God's purposes, undermining God's commandments. And he explains that in verse 11. He says, but if you say, if a man tells his father and his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. So the way that this Corbin worked, it was a deferred giving program of sorts, as if uh, you had some money or some property set aside so that when you passed away, it would be donated to the church. And so, for example, let's say I had $100,000 in my savings account. I, I don't, but let's pretend because it's happy to pretend that. Uh, let's say I have $100,000 and I say to the church, this is Corbin. Uh, this is going to be donated to the church when I die. Now, what I can do is I can draw from that $100,000 for my own needs, but in this time, I was not able to use that money to care for my parents because it was dedicated to God, not to my parents. And so even if my parents were homeless and bankrupt and destitute, I could not take any of that Corbin money and give it to my parents to care for their needs. And so these man-made laws were undermining the law of God to honor your father and mother. Now, many of you know that Corbin is a name very near and dear to my heart. My oldest son is named Corbin. And you may be wondering, why in the world would you name your son uh, something that comes in the form of the rebuke of Jesus, right? And my dad asked me, like, well, you know Jesus is rebuking them. Why would you name your son that? 
Well, the wrong understanding of Corbin does not negate the beauty of the right understanding of Corbin. You see, Corbin means an offering devoted to God. And what Jesus is teaching here is it's not just what you do in the church and not just what you give to the church that is Corbin, that is an offering devoted to God, but all of life is Corbin. All of life is an offering devoted to God. Honoring your father and your mother is an offering devoted to God. Caring for the poor and the sick and the needy is an offering devoted to God. Loving the sojourner. And caring for the friendless is an offering devoted to God. But here Jesus is commenting on their corrupt system of Corbin that actually makes them neglect care for their parents. Verse 13 continues and says, thus making void the word of God. So, So he says, you've put it aside, you've rejected it, you've made void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down and many such things you do. This man-made system of Corbin caused them to neglect the very word of God. It probably started out with good intentions, but quickly it led to laying aside the very word of God. You know, I mentioned that the, that, the, that the religious leaders of Jews had so many extra biblical laws. and I mean, there's just volumes of it. One of it was on the Sabbath and, and if you remember back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus enters the synagogue and there's a man there with the withered hand. And it says in Mark 3 that they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And then Jesus breaks the man-made rules of the Sabbath. Not God-made rules, but man-made rules. And Jesus heals the man. And the Pharisees went out immediately and had counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so Jesus is giving life on the Sabbath day. And as a result of it, the religious leaders with their rules want to take the life of Jesus. You know, there is a temptation for us to think the Christian with the most rules is the most mature. But we have to be so careful because extra biblical rules can actually undermine God's heart and God's word. So legalism adds to God's commandments. Legalism often undermines God's commandments. But finally, and maybe more importantly, legalism externalizes God's commandments. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Very interesting saying. What does he mean by that? Verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And so here we see Jesus focusing on the heart because the heart is the core of a person. The heart is where the emotions and the passions and the desires and the values of a person exist. The heart is what makes a person clean or unclean. And Jesus is saying, listen, what you eat or if you eat with dirty hands, it is not going to touch your heart. It goes in one part of your body, goes through the stomach and comes out another part of your body, never touching the heart. And so it is not food, it's not something outside of you that makes you unclean, that makes you defiled. And so the question is, what does make us unclean? What does defile us? Well, Jesus tells us very clearly 
He does not mince words. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, not outside, but within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, legalism is external in two ways. It's external in that it says that religion is all about what you do. It's external. It's, it's the things you perform, the things you don't do, the things you do do. But it's also external, and it says that we are the clean ones, and those people out there, they are the dirty ones. And we have to keep ourselves away from them so that we don't get dirty. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. Jesus says that God is all about the internal. God is all about the heart and the source of uncleanliness, the origin of defilement, the genesis of perversion and wickedness is your heart. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. The reason you are defiled is because your heart is vile. My heart is vile. I'm so curious. What do you think is wrong with the world? Do you think it's the Republicans? Do you think it's the Democrats? Do you think it's the woke? Do you think it's the racists? Do you think it's your husband or your wife or your parents or your children? Legalism blames everything out there. But Jesus says the problem is not out there. The problem is with you. I've shared this illustration before. If you've been here for a minute, you've probably heard it before. But it's a story of G.K. Chesterton, who is a famous theologian. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a newspaper editorial in the London Times that asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And as a theologian and philosopher, G.K. Chesterton read all of these long-winded responses to what was wrong with the world. But in the response to this question, what is wrong with the world, this godly theologian, G.K. Chesterton, simply writes out on this postcard, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. You know, in my journey evangelism, I've asked a whole lot of people, why is the world so messed up? And no one has ever said me. They've always said because of selfish people out there. Legalism says the problem is out there, but Jesus says the problem is in here. And so what is it that defiles you? Let me just remind you of Jesus' assessment of your heart. Verse 21 again, for from within you, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You know, nothing cures legalism like an understanding of our own depravity. J.C. Ryle, in reflecting on this passage, says this. He says, every man carries within him a fount of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. How humble we ought to be when we read these verses. All of us have become as one who is unclean in God's sight. He sees in each one of us countless evils, which the world never sees at all. And then it ends by saying this. 
He reads our hearts. Friends, you can fool the world, you can put on a good show, but the God of the universe reads your hearts. And so the question that we have is this, how can we become clean? The, the Pharisees, their answer was, don't, don't take in dirty, you know, wash your hands, that way you can stay clean and not be defiled. But how can we have clean hearts? How can we have undefiled hearts? Well, this word defiled that is used many times in this passage also comes up in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood or goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, and then here is defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Friends, this is the bad news. Your heart is defiled, dirty, depraved, and dead. The world may not know it, but God knows it because God reads your heart. But the good news is this, is that the same God who reads your heart, the same God who knows all of your sin, all of your weakness, all of your evil, is the same God who loves you and has pursued you by sending his son Jesus to you. Jesus has come as the only undefiled human ever to live, and at the cross he has taken on our defilement and paid for in full upon the cross so that he could rise again. And now we, those who trust in Christ, are righteous, not by what we do externally, but because we have been washed by the blood of Christ, who washes away all of our sin, all of our defilement, and makes us acceptable before God. You see, legalism is lethal because legalism bypasses the heart, but God, God focuses on the heart. God sees the wickedness of our heart. He reads it like a book, and he still loves us and cares for us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. Let me end with this. On Friday night, we had the father-daughter dance right in here. Uh, we were doing Cotton Eye Joe right about where Pat and Joy are. It was, it was awesome. And, uh, and so I got to take my daughter out to dinner beforehand, and we sat at Texas Roadhouse and talked about, you know, just life, you know, what's going on and, and, and what she likes and what she might want to do in the future and what's going well and how she's feeling about different things. And it was just a wonderful time together. And then we came here, and we, we danced, and we laughed, and we just had an awesome time. But imagine if, if I did all of those things, but my heart wasn't in it. Imagine if we went to dinner and I'm just scrolling through my phone, right? Just looking up something on Craigslist, I don't know, or checking out Facebook. And, and then we come to the dance and we get here and, you know, I, I'm here, but I'm not like really, in, I'm not dancing and I'm just kind of sitting on the sidelines and, and just looking and yawning and not really. How do you think that would be for my daughter? I mean, I've done all of the things I'm supposed to do, but my heart isn't in any of it. It would be awful. It would be misery. I, I, I'd have to start saving up for her counseling right now. That's how, that's how devastating something like that would be. And yet that's so often how we come to God, isn't it? We come with our actions and our emotions, but our hearts are far from God. Maybe even this morning you said, I don't want to go to church. 
You know, one of the scariest verses in this passage is verse 6 into verse 7. It says, And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, right? They, they sing praises in church. They say glory to God. They say all the right things. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Your worship is meaningless. It means nothing because even though you're doing all of the actions, your heart is so far from God. Maybe you are here today, maybe you're just going through the motions, and you're at church because you are supposed to be, and that's good that you're here, but God is not satisfied with your attendance. He's not satisfied with your behaviors. God wants your heart. Let me read one more quote from J.C. Ryle that just haunted me this week. He says, the heart is the part of the man which God chiefly notices in religion. The bowed head and the bended knee, the grave face and the rigid posture, the ritual response and the formal amen, all these together do not make up a spiritual worshiper. The eyes of God look further and deeper. He requires the worship of the heart. Give me your heart, my son, he says to every one of us. Let us remember this is the public, let us remember this in the public congregation. It must not content us to take our bodies to church if we leave our hearts at home. The eye of man may detect no flaw in our service. Our minister may look at us with approval. Our neighbors may think us patterns of what a Christian ought to be. Our voice may be heard foremost in the praise and prayer. But it is all worse than nothing in God's sight if our hearts are far away. I asked David to close this week with kind of a retro song, uh, a song from my youth, a song called The Heart of Worship. And it is a song of repentance, repenting over our legalism, repenting of how we have made this Christian thing a external thing, repenting of our begrudging obedience to God. You see, worship is not primarily about what we do or what we say. Worship is primarily about who we love. And so this song is an opportunity for you to confess your sin to God, confess how external you have made your faith, and cry out to God to transform your heart, to worship him not only with your actions, but more importantly, with your passions and your desires and your heart. God doesn't want your external, legalistic, dry obedience God wants your heart. Will you give it to him for the first time or maybe once again? Let's pray. Lord God, I come confessing how I often turn Christianity into a to-do and a to-don't list. Did I do my quiet time? Did I pray enough? Did I do this? Did I do that? And so many of those are good things, great things, but so often I leave my heart behind. And the hard part, God, is that I, I can't change my heart. I can't wake my heart up. I can't make my heart love. And so, God, we cry out to you that you, that you inflame the passion of our heart to grow close to you, to be intimate with you, to delight in you, and to glory in you as our God and our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.